It is a complete joy to have this opportunity to be with you all and get to open God's word together. It is a little bit intimidating in the sense that um, at the end of Job, uh, Job like for like 36 chapters complains about God and complains to God. And then Job, and then God shows up and God kind of puts Job in his place. And uh, right at the end of that book, Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now I see you. And that's how I feel about 12 South. This is a vibe. Like this, you got people like hanging from the rafters in here. Um, and, and, and here's why it's intimidating because we have a congregational meeting on Thursday to literally vote on my livelihood. And so you all hold a lot of power over me. And before this weekend, it was like, Gary from Granny White, whatever, yeah, we'll vote. But now you know me, and if this doesn't go well, like Thursday could, could go really sideways. So I feel that pressure. You are the largest voting block in the Midtown family. And so um, I'm hoping I can count on your vote. <laughs> uh, just uh, like, um, I know like very few of you even know who I am. This is the first time you've ever seen me. And so I'm just going to give you like the one minute bio, not because you necessarily care, but I always like to know where the people who I'm listening to are coming from. So I grew up in the Cleveland, Ohio area, Northeast Ohio, went to Wheaton College outside of Chicago. Did I hear a woo? Mm, that was weak. Uh, maybe, maybe it wasn't. Um, met my wife there, uh, studied business and economics, spent the next 11 years in the business world, uh, worked 10 of those years for an investment firm based in the suburbs of Chicago, five years in the Chicago suburbs, five years back in Ohio, which was home. In 2015, this was a way long process that we do not have time to go over today, uh, but we felt like God was calling us out of that into something else. And so uh, I quit my job, we sold our house, we loaded a U-Haul, we had three kids at the time, we drove to Boston, where I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. We had another child while we were there. Um, we figured out how that works, and we're done with do doing that now. Um, graduated in 2018, uh, went to a church in the Bay Area, first as the associate pastor, last couple of years as the lead pastor. Um, and then last year, through God's amazing kindness and providence, uh, he called us to Midtown. So we got here last November. Um, I've been working on ordination since then. It is a heavy lift, but the end is in sight. And uh, depending on how things go over the next few weeks, uh, I should be uh, the, the new pastor uh, down the street at Granny White. Um, love this church. I'm, I feel so privileged to be a part of Midtown. I feel so privileged to be a part of this community. Um, I am still getting to know some of the people here at 12 South, some of your staff, but you have an amazing staff here at 12 South. Uh, these are phenomenal people who love Jesus. And I know I don't need to like sell you on it because y'all are packing this place out to be here on a Sunday morning, but you have some of the finest staff and preachers in the denomination, in the city, in the state. Uh, if you're if this is your home, you know that. If you're new here, just know you have landed, you have come to a really special place this morning. Um, and important for you to know this, the regular preachers are much better than what you are about to hear. So if you're visiting, don't, don't judge it based on this. And I think that's everything Elliot wanted me to say before we got into this, <laughs> but we're good. Um, let's pray before we get into God's word. God, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for the opportunity to gather together in this place, in your name. Um, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. 
thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. God, we have given you our worship this morning and now we ask in turn that you would speak to us. We believe that the Bible is not a history book necessarily. It is not a, a guide for living necessarily, though it is those things. God, we believe it is your very words to us. And so I pray that you would now speak to us through your word. I pray that you would open our eyes to see, eyes to see our ears to hear our hearts to receive uh, what it is that you have for us this morning. I pray God that for all intents and purposes over the next few moments, I would disappear and only you would be seen. Hide me behind your cross. We pray all this in Jesus name, amen. Uh, we are working through, uh, the, the, that's the royal we, you all. We're doing kind of the same thing at Granny White uh, through a series on the Lord's Prayer this summer. And so I'm jumping right into the, uh, the stream of that. And so uh, we're gonna start off by reading the Lord's Prayer. I'm not gonna do the introductory stuff just for the sake of time, but if you wanna follow along, uh, you can meet me in Mark chapter six, starting in verse nine. Today's sermon is on verse 12. And so I'm gonna stop once I get to verse 12. This is Jesus who has said, this is how... Uh, you are to pray. Verse nine, pray, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, not only do you all pack this place out, you generate some heat. So it's, uh, it's warm up here. It's gonna be some... I'm, it's not, I'm, if, if you see me sweating, it's not because I'm nervous. It's just, it's hot in here. Uh, do you remember, for those of you who are old enough now, do you remember uh, the first person in your group of friends who got their driver's license? It was like, like they went to another level right off the bat. I, I was a June birthday. Actually, I still am a June birthday. Um, <laughs> June 2nd, so if you missed it this year, you can get me next year, it's all right. Uh, but I was one of the youngest kids in my class, so virtually everyone turned 16 before I did. And there was one guy in my group of friends in high school who was like a July birthday of the year before, so he was almost a year older than me. And so he got his driver's license like the, the first day of school, our sophomore year, 10th grade. And he came from some money and his parents bought him a Chevy Blazer. So it's like, it creates kind of an awkward dynamic, you know, when we're all still riding our Schwins and our Huffies around town and he's rolling in a midsize SUV. But it also makes him really popular because he can drive. And so uh, all of a sudden, like everyone's clamoring to be his best friend in part because he's only got three other seats or four other seats in his car. The backseat was small. It was really kind of like he had three and a half other seats. Uh, but one Saturday, I will never forget this day, uh, my friends and I were all hanging out at someone's house. Uh, I don't remember what we were doing. And actually, I do remember what we were doing. It was nothing, which is what I did so much of my time in high school. Um, my mom, when we were hanging out, used to always tell us, why don't you do something with your lives? And we would say, what? And she would say, write a play or something. And that was a joke for me and my friends all through high school. Like, we're gonna write a play. And then I heard about uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck who wrote Goodwill Hunting when they were hanging out together and actually it worked out pretty well for them. So maybe I should have, should have written a play. We're doing nothing, uh, but we decide we're gonna hang out that night and the guy who's got the car is gonna drive and we're gonna go out to dinner. And I know this is a long shot, but there was someone in the first service who knew it. Uh, a place in Ohio called Swenson's, which is a drive-in burger place. We got at least one. And it's kind of legendary in Northeast Ohio. And it's like made doubly cool when you can actually drive there, not with your parents, but with your friend in his car. And so that was the plan for the night. So I got on my bike, rode home, told my parents what was going on, got cleaned up. 
they were coming by at six o'clock. So I parked myself in the front hallway of our house, looking out the door, six o'clock. I'm, I'm ready for them to get there. 605, 6.10, 6.15, 6.20, 6.25. You can see where this is going. There were no, as young as I look, there were no iPhones. There was no share your location. Uh, there was, I, I, I went to the kitchen and picked up our landline and I called all their houses and all their moms were like, oh Gary, they left like an hour ago. And so now not only have I been ditched by my friends, but all their moms know that I've been ditched by them. And so it's, it's shame upon shame. And, uh, and they had just, they had just ditched me. They had, we had decided we were all going to go, whatever, too many guys, not enough seats. And for whatever reason, I didn't get picked up that night because they decided that I wasn't going to be the one who went with them. I, it was 10th grade. It was like 26 years ago, something like that. I don't know if the math is right on that. I can still feel the pain of it as I tell that story. And I know some of you are like, come on, man, it's not that big of a deal, but it hurt to, to know that like my best friends had all decided we're just going to bail on that guy and, uh, and not really worry about like what it, what he feels like or how, how it makes him feel. Uh, I spent all day Sunday um, plotting how I was going to pour out my wrath on them when I saw them the next day at school. And my best friend, who was one of those guys who had gone there, uh, he and I were on the soccer team together. And so Monday afternoon at soccer practice, um, fall, you, you may not know this, but I'm just going to tell you, fall of 1997, auxiliary soccer field, Hudson High School, Hudson, Ohio, cancel culture was invented by me. Part of it was I was just too immature to know how to handle my emotions or my feelings at that time. But it was like, he was like, hey, like, how's it going? And I just turned and walked away. And he would try and talk to me and I would walk away and he would ask me questions and I would ignore him. And then he would be like, come on, man, it's not that big a deal. And I would just be silent and go kick the ball somewhere else. And for all the practice, I just, I wouldn't make eye contact with him. I wouldn't talk to him. And it, it felt so good. It felt so good to just rub his nose in how crummy he had made me feel. And he started to get the, the, I think, the idea. And so after practice, he comes over to me and, and he's like, Gary, what we did was really lame. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And I was like, dang it, because I'm a Christian and now I have to forgive you. But I also needed friends for the rest of high school. And so there was a little bit of self-motivation in there as well to, to forgive him as well. Here's my question. Has it ever happened to you? Not that a bunch of knuckleheads in 10th grade ditch you for a night out at Swenson's, but has anyone ever done something that hurt you? Has, has anyone ever done something, has anyone ever said they were going to do something and then not done it? Has anyone ever done something to you that they shouldn't have? Has anyone ever said something mean to you? Has anyone ever said something mean about you? Has anyone ever lied to you? Has anyone ever lied about you? Got a, got a lot of people in this room. It might depend on what your Enneagram number is, but there's some people who are like, yep, everybody. You and you and you and you and you and you, all of you. And then there's other people kind of like me who are like, that's, that's probably my fault. Like, I've, it's probably not that big a deal. I probably did something. And, it, and neither one of those is true, okay? The truth is the middle ground, which is we have all had someone or someone's do something that has hurt us. What is so amazing and, and so sad is humanity's almost immeasurable capacity to hurt each other. We have all been hurt, some of us in really deep ways. And that is what makes this message that I'm about to preach, or I guess I'm in the middle of preaching right now, 
really hard because what would be really easy for me to do, uh, kind of mediocre preacher, still learning what it looks like to be a preacher, it would be really easy to just come in at theoretical theology land and just spew a bunch of Christian platitudes that if you've been around church for a while would be really familiar to us about how, oh, we're called to forgive and forget and God's working everything for good and things will get better. And all of those things are true, but there are, a, there are some of us, I would say statistically, but we don't even need to say statistically. We just know in a room this size, there are some of us who have felt incredible hurt there are some of us who have been hurt in ways that if we uh, open up one of those mics and we're not going to do it, but and had just an open mic time and invited people to come down and share their stories, there wouldn't be a dry eye in the room because some of us have walked through incredible pain. And that is what makes it so hard to come to a text like Matthew 6, 12, where Jesus calls us to, to ask for forgiveness, but then also to forgive others because it's not just theoretical theology land. It, it, it strikes at the core of our human experience and some of the deepest, most painful hurts that any of us have ever felt. And so what we're gonna do this morning is do our best not to hang out in theoretical theology land. What I love about God's word is that it keeps it real. And he doesn't just speak in theoretical theology, it speaks to our hearts. And we're gonna ask that, that God would do that as we come to his word this morning. This is the spoiler alert. This is a message about forgiveness. And I don't really like to use this word, but I think it applies here it could be one of the more triggering messages that we ever hear because we're gonna have to think about people and things that have really hurt us. But my hope and prayer is that God will meet us in this and that he actually might reveal some truth that could even change our lives this morning. So we're in a series on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, as we come to Matthew 6, 12, a couple of things I just wanna point out. One of the things I love about the Lord's Prayer is it's found in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' longest and most famous teaching. It's found in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. And the, uh, these verses on prayer where Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer are found dead in the center of the Sermon on the Mount. In, in Greek, there are 116 Greek lines above the Sermon on the Mount, and there are 114 Greek lines after it. It's almost like Jesus is painting a physical picture in the way that he teaches what it means to look like a disciple of his, that prayer is the heartbeat of it. It is the center of it. And as we come to this, Jesus gives us three petitions that we are to kind of ask about God. And then in the back half of the prayer, he gives us three petitions that we are to ask for ourselves. Last week was the first one. Elliot preached on it. Um, give us this day, our daily bread, the bread that lasts forever. If you haven't heard it or listened to it, I commend it to you. Fantastic sermon. And this week we come to the second of those three petitions that we're called to ask for ourselves. And it is this, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And there are a lot of hard things that those few little words can dig up. And so here's what we're going to do as we study this verse together. We're going to go to another part of scripture because sometimes when we come to the Bible, we read stuff and we're like, I don't know what this means. I'm not sure how to apply this. I'm not sure what this is all about. And that's where we need help from like a gifted Bible scholar, a preacher, Tim Keller. He usually has all of the answers. Um, but there are other times where scripture actually interprets itself. And so what I love about what we're looking at today is, uh, Six chapters later, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us, a gives us a parable. It's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
And it is Matthew 6.12 played out in real time. If Matthew 6.12 was a little slide, like a picture slide, and the light shone through it, what would come up on the wall is Matthew 6.18. So we're going to study these in conjunction. And if we're going to study it, we need to know what it says. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip there, Matthew 18. I just realized I said six chapters later. That would be 12 chapters later. Sorry about that. I'm a preacher, not a mathematician. This is Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, looking at Matthew 6, 12 and Matthew 18, 21 through 35 in conjunction, I just want to draw out three things that we learn about this really touchy subject of forgiveness. And this is the first one. It's hard to forgive. It is hard to forgive. The word that is used forgive in both Matthew 6, 12 and Matthew 18 in Greek is a word that uh, denotes or connotates separation or physical movement. So there are other places that this same Greek word is used in the Bible and it is translated as leave, abandon, or divorce. And so when Jesus says, instructs us to to ask for forgiveness and when he gives us this story of a servant whose incredible debt was forgiven, what that gets at is the idea of there's there's something here and there's something here. There's a person and there's a debt and to forgive it, is to move them away from each other. Now, that debt doesn't just disappear, and we're going to circle back to that in just a few moments. But the idea, the biblical idea of forgiveness is separating one thing from another. And we see that in the parable in Matthew chapter 18, do we not? So this servant owes 10,000 talents. Now, some of you will have a footnote in your Bible that says a talent, one talent, was 20 years wages for a common laborer. So let me just help us out with the math here. So if you take that in 2023 dollars and you assume an annual salary of $40,000 a year, 10,000 talents is $400 billion. That is more than the gross national product of 80% of the countries in the world. Many scholars say Jesus wasn't actually really putting a number on the debt. He was just speaking of an immeasurable debt, one that could never be repaid. If if you were in debt $400 billion and you paid back a million dollars a year, 
It would take you 400,000 years to pay that debt back. And we're at year 2023, so buckle up, it's going to take a while. The king says what to him? He pleads with him, never going to, well, he says, I'll pay it back. And you're like, yeah, all right, dude. Uh, that's the reason you got into the debt is saying stuff like that. And the king says what? I forgive it. But what does that actually mean? Does that debt disappear? No, the debt is still there. All that happens when the king forgives the debt is that someone else now becomes responsible for it. And who becomes responsible for it? The king. And so to forgive is actually to absorb the cost of whatever harm has been done to you. Why is it hard to forgive? Because it hurts. Because whatever someone has done to us, for us to say, I forgive you and actually mean it, means that we take that hurt and we internalize it ourselves. We take that cost and we bear it ourselves. Imagine uh, that you had a car. Uh, many of you probably don't have to. Uh, that's not that far of a stretch. I would imagine a lot of you have cars. Imagine it was your only car. And imagine that a friend asked you to borrow that car and they took it and you, you let them borrow it and they wrecked it, totaled it beyond being able to, to fix it. And then they came to you and said, hey, I'm sorry, I totaled your car. And probably if you're like me, you would be like, I wish that you were a little, more, little bit more remorseful in the way that you communicated that. But, but you go ahead and forgive them. What does that mean? It means they're no different than they were before. They still don't have a car. But, but who, whose status has changed? Yours. Because you got to absorb that cost. Because either now you got to buy a new car yourself or you're walking or you're biking or you're one wheeling or boost boarding or whatever it is that you have. But whatever it is, when you forgive that loss, you absorb it into yourself. That's why forgiveness is really hard. Because when we choose to forgive someone else, usually it's because they've hurt us once already. And it's like, so actually when I forgive you, now I have to allow that hurt to, to reside. I have to absorb that cost again. Uh, Tim Keller uh, wrote a book that recently came out called Forgive, and it's all about forgiveness. And one of the things that he says very early on in that book is that forgiveness is so hard because it is voluntary suffering. To forgive someone is to choose to suffer. And we hate to suffer. We hate being forced to suffer. How much more do we hate choosing to suffer on our own? Listen to what he says. This is his definition of forgiveness. There are four aspects of it, three of which are pretty painful. So just walk through it with me. Keller says, to forgive then is first to name the trespass truthfully as wrong and punishable rather than merely excusing it. And that's like, we're good. Okay, we can do that. Second, it is to identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner rather than thinking how different from you he or she is. It is to will their good. That hurts. Third, it is to release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt oneself rather than seeking revenge and paying them back. That also hurts. Fourth, finally, it is to aim for reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship forever. If you omit any one of these four actions, you are not engaging in real forgiveness. Now, that could be a whole sermon on its own, but we don't preach Tim Keller's words here. We preach God's words. Suffice it to say, it is hard to forgive because when we forgive, we take the cost of that debt onto ourselves. 
Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing I want us to see in these passages is this. It is hard to be forgiven. It is hard to be forgiven. And this is where the sermon pivots, this is where the message pivots a little bit because up to this point, some of us in this room, maybe many of us in this room could be like, you know what? I think that's great. It sounds good. I know it's hard to forgive, but I don't have any beef with anybody. I have forgiven people in my life. I mean, I'm, I'm on good terms with everybody. Uh, like it's a nice message, but I'm not sure that it's for me. This is for everybody. It is hard to be forgiven. Matthew 6, 12 is one verse. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And because it's just one verse, I looked at like eight or 10 commentaries this week about what two scholars have to say about what Jesus is saying here. And I would say nine of those 10 were about how hard it is to forgive. But one of them, it was, uh, it's by a guy named Stanley Howarwis, who was a, a theology professor at Duke for many years. I don't think he's still there. Uh, he was the only one who said, actually, the harder part of forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is not forgiving our debtors, it is asking God to forgive us. Because to ask for forgiveness acknowledges that we owe somebody something. And he says we spend most of our lives trying to avoid acknowledging the fact that we might have hurt somebody else, that we might owe a debt to somebody else especially here in a place like Green Hills in Nashville. The, the, um, the accolades and the success and the beauty that fills this room right now and the service before and the service are coming later, it is really easy for us to start to believe that we don't owe anybody anything, that we have made it ourselves, that we are good people and, and the lies we live are the fruits of our labor. But the message of this book, basically from page one to the last page is that we owe somebody something that we have this thing inside of us called sin that we are born into and that sin has, has racked up a debt with God that we could never pay. And that is not a popular teaching in today's day and age. It is hard to acknowledge that we need to be forgiven. Um, I am not a lawyer. I have never been to law school. I have seen Legally Blonde, but that was a long time ago. Uh, but there is, a, uh, there is a plea that is permissible in virtually every state court and most federal courts uh, in the United States. There are a few states that don't allow it, and it is called an Alford plea. And all I can think of when I say that is Steve Alford, who was the basketball coach for the Iowa Hawkeyes and UCL, UCLA Bruins. It has nothing to do with him. An Alford plea is this. An Alford plea allows you to plead guilty to what you are being charged with while maintaining your innocence and not admitting guilt. Only in America. <laughs> it, it basically is, the, it, it's used in a situation where you are being charged with a crime and you decide or your lawyer helps you decide that the evidence against you is so strong that were this to go to court, it's, it's almost sure that you will be found guilty of the crime which in my mind, I'm like, which probably means you committed the crime, but not, maybe not necessarily. And you are allowed to plead guilty without admitting guilt and while maintaining your innocence. And so while a lot of us are like, I don't even have, you can look it up. I looked it up this week. I'm not making this up. While a lot of you are like, that doesn't even make sense to me. And we want to kind of get up on our high horse and be like, well, that's stupid. And like, how's that allowable? Um, can I just bring it home a little bit and say, um, it's actually how a lot of us come to God. It's actually how a lot of us approach our relationship with God. A lot of us come to God and we're like, I don't really like the way that you have set this whole thing up. 
this whole original sin and I have sin in my life and I owe you something. I don't really love that, but I guess you're God and you're in charge and um, you're all powerful and all that stuff. So, so I guess I'll plead guilty, but really I'm kind of going to maintain my innocence. Like I'm really not, not as bad as you say I am. And so um, like, I guess I'll plead guilty, but I don't think I really need to be forgiven for that much. And what's really hard and what you probably like, you're like, dude, stop harping on this. But it's like, it's like the core of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about is that nothing could be further from the truth. The, the truth of the gospel is we are more sinful than we could possibly imagine. And yet we are more loved than we could ever comprehend. And the way that we see that love is in the fact that God's promise to us, not the hope, not the maybe, not if you're like, remorseful enough and penitent enough, and if he's canceled you for long enough, the promise of God is if we put ourselves under the blood of Jesus shed on the cross and we come to God and we say, I am in debt to you in a way that I could never pay back. Will you please forgive me? He does it. That is the truth and beauty and hope of the gospel. And as one scholar said, I read this week, it is the most, it is the primary thing that humanity needs is the forgiveness of God. And this, this neighborhood and this town and this city and this country and this world are full of people who are not willing to do that, who are not willing or not able to come to the place where they say, I owe something to God and I need to be forgiven by him. Most would say God actually probably owes me something. And for those of us who call ourselves Christians, let's keep it real. Sometimes we feel that way too. But that is not the message of the gospel. It is hard to forgive and it is hard to be forgiven. And here's the last one. And this is probably the most raw, um, but it's, I think, the main idea of Matthew six twelve and of the parable of the unforgiving servant. We must forgive. We have to forgive if we have experienced the forgiveness of God, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, if we have experienced the vertical forgiveness and reconciliation that God has done for us, he calls us to turn around and give that forgiveness and reconciliation to those who have hurt us. Martin Luther, who was the great church reformer, nailed the 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg. Just took my church history exam. This wasn't on it, but he says talking about this, this verse. Our ability to forgive others is the evidence of God's forgiveness at work in us. Our ability to forgive others is the evidence of God's forgiveness at work in us. Can I say that another way? Our ability to forgive others is the proof that we are saved. An unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. And if you don't like that or you want to talk about that, you can email me, Elliot at midtownfellowship.org. <laughs> it's hard because here's the deal. I'm doing exactly what I told you up front I was going to try not to do, but it's the, it's, the, it's the main truth of this text. Some of us have experienced unbelievable hurt. Some of us have walked things that, that it would be hard to speak of. Our community did just a few months ago. There are families in this church. There are families at our, our congregation down the road at Granny White who on March 27th experienced the unthinkable. And, and so this is not just like, hey, kumbaya, let's, we all got to forgive. That's what Christians do. This is, this is raw. 
but it's the call of God on our lives. And I'm not sure there are many things harder that God calls us to do than to extend to others the forgiveness that he has extended to us. If we are called by Jesus Christ, if we are his, he has called us to forgive others. Some of you will know the name Corrie Ten Boom. She lived in the middle part of the last century in the Netherlands. She uh, and her sister Betsy and her father uh, were, were watchmakers and watch repairs in um, the Dutch city of Harlem, not New York Harlem, Dutch Harlem. And during World War II, they hid Jewish people in their home from the Nazis. Uh, and they were caught, they were arrested. Uh, her father died within 10 days of being arrested. And she and her sister Betsy were sent to the uh, Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany, which was an all women's concentration camp. Um, she experienced there what many of us know of the horrors of the concentration camps during World War II. Um, she was released 12 days after her sister Betsy died in that concentration camp. After she was released, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place about her story. It's an amazing book. I commend it to all of you if you haven't read it. And she became a fairly well-known author and speaker talking about um, what had happened to her. Three years after she was released from that concentration camp, she was invited back to Germany to a church in Munich to speak. And she went and spoke on God's forgiveness. She writes that in the years following the war, the people in Germany were bitter and bombed out. And she said they needed to hear about God's forgiveness. And after she spoke, the room, I would imagine a room a lot like this, they quietly began to file out the back of the room. But one man began working his way against the crowd, coming down uh, towards where she had been speaking. And, and on his way, she, her stomach dropped because she recognized him. He had been a guard at the concentration camp that she and Betsy had been at. And, and she says, she writes about this, she says her, 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 her mind and heart were flooded with memories of walking past him naked while he had a whip in his hand, looking at the ribs of her sister sticking out in front of her. And as he got down to the front, he put out his hand to shake her hand and he said, that was a wonderful message on forgiveness. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrück concentration camp. He said, I was a guard there. And he said, since that time I have become a Christian and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I have done, but I would like to hear if you would forgive me as well. And she says, she froze. She says it was probably only a few seconds, but it felt like an eternity. And all she could do in that moment was say, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. And after a few moments, she lifted her hand and she put it in his. And she said, I forgive you brother with all of my heart. And she said, she said it was the hardest thing she's ever done. And she said, never in her life has she felt the love of God the way that she felt in that moment. There are not many things harder that God calls us to do, that Jesus calls his followers to do than to forgive. It is real and it is raw. But there is um, the evidence that we have experienced the love and forgiveness of God. One of the ways that it will be borne out is if we can turn around and extend that to other people. It's hard because there are people in my life I don't wanna forgive. 
but it's what God has called us to do. And we could spend a whole sermon talking about this. Uh, and I just like, feel like it needs to be mentioned. When we don't forgive and we think like, like with my buddy on the soccer field, like he's going to really feel bad because I'm going to rub his nose in it. Who it really hurts the most is us when we don't forgive. After the war, uh, Corey Ten Boom set up a home where people who had been um, abused by the Nazis could come and recover. And this is what she says about those who were able to forgive and those who were not. She says, those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Why is this one of the three? God, Jesus gave us three things to pray about ourselves. And this is one of the three. Why? I think because it is, because it is so hard. The only way we could possibly live out what Jesus is calling us to do here is if we have the spirit of God living inside of us. This goes contrary to every fiber of our humanity. Forgiveness is one word removed from a swear word in the world and culture that we live in today. But with the spirit of God renewing us inside out, somehow, supernaturally, we are able to do what we could not do on our own. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, I just want to say, uh, as we, we're going we're to close on this, and I just have one more thing I want to say, and really, I feel like this should come from one of your pastors. I know we're a Midtown family of pastors, and so we're all family, but I'm like the long-lost cousin that you never met, and all of a sudden shows up here and is preaching. Um, the last thing I would ever want someone to get from this message, and the last thing I would ever want someone to get from Matthew 6.12 or Matthew 18 is this, that if you are in an abusive relationship, God calls you to stay in that and forgive. That is not God's heart. That is not the heart of this church or the staff of this church or the pastors at Midtown. There is a difference between interpersonal conflict, between things that need to be forgiven and abuse. And I know sometimes that line is murky and gray, but the church, let's just keep it real, does not have a great track record of standing with those who have been abused. And so I just, the last thing I would want any of you to walk away from here saying is I, I am in an unhealthy, abusive relationship and God is calling me to stay in it and forgive and absorb that cost into myself. Uh, there, the biblical understanding of forgiveness cannot be divorced from justice. They, 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 they go hand in hand. And so if that is you, if you are in a situation where you feel like you are being physically, emotionally, any other way abused, the answer is not first to forgive and then figure it out. The call is to flee. And then we'll figure out forgiveness after that. The reason this church exists is to help people who are in need. And so please hear my heart when I say that. Forgiveness and justice are not antithetical. And I think that's why a lot of people don't like to hear about forgiveness because they think that that means justice is forgone. That is not the way the Bible teaches it. Forgiveness and justice go hand in hand. And, and I can tell you that with so much confidence because in the most important event in human history, it was the culmination of forgiveness and justice meeting in the same moment. Do you remember what Luke tells us when Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, looking down at the people who had just nailed him up there, the ones who were hurling insults, spitting at him, throwing things at him. Do you remember what he said? Father, what? 
forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus called down forgiveness while at the same time, what was happening? Justice was being served. Remember, why is forgiveness hard? Go back a few points in the sermon because we absorb the cost into ourselves. So when God forgives us, when the king forgave the debt, what happened to that debt? It was absorbed. It was taken on by the king. And it's the same thing for you and me. When God forgives us of our sins, our sins don't just disappear and fly off into never, never land. They still need to be, the debt still needs to be paid. Instead of you and I paying it, the son of God, the God man himself, Jesus Christ took that debt upon himself, paid the penalty that you and I could never pay on the cross. Justice was served on our sins. It just wasn't served on you and me. It was served on Jesus Christ. Forgiveness and justice go hand in hand and may we never separate the two. It is hard to forgive. It is hard to be forgiven, but we gotta forgive. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that, um, we thank you, God, that in your word, sometimes you give us um, steak and lobster, and sometimes you give us vegetables. And we all know that, God, sometimes we have to, not sometimes, we always need vegetables to live. And so I pray, God, that, um, that the truth of what you've taught us this morning, I pray, God, that the, the, the overwhelming nature of your forgiveness toward us would somehow supernaturally flow out of us to those around us. I pray, God, that we wouldn't just kind of walk out of here and go to brunch or lunch and begin to start to think about what needs to happen Monday, but God, I pray that you might even, through your spirit, impress on our hearts and minds someone that we need to ask for forgiveness from or someone that we need to extend forgiveness to whether they've asked for it or not. We thank you for the forgiveness that you have given to us. It's more than we can comprehend. In Jesus' name, amen.